The experience of going to a white box kind of art gallery that is austere and unwelcoming is, is not as great as like going in and sitting in the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel and looking at Johnny Pagazzi's photos and having a drink at the Polo Lounge or walking through the gardens of the Hotel Bel Air and then having a glass of champagne at our opening reception. That's a better way to experience art. Welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. The show about the visionaries who keep three blocks in Beverly Hills at the forefront of fashion and culture. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. I'm Lynn Winter, your host for this episode. Jean Pigozzi turned his camera onto the glitterati and created legendary images. Now his work is on view at the Beverly Hills Hotel in a show called Jean Pigozzi the Photographs, Beverly Hills to Cap Dantive. It's curated by Jim Hedges, art collector, owner of one of the largest collections of Andy Warhol photographs in the world, and now the new curator of the arts for the Beverly Hills Hotel and the Bel Air Hotel. He joins us now. Jim, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So before we delve into your role as curator of the arts, could we get some context starting in Tennessee, where mm. you grew up in a family that I understand was involved in the art world for generations? Yes, yes. I, uh, I am originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I, I do come from a bit of a creative family. Uh, my great-grandmother was actually this, this wonderfully creative character who started the museum in our local community. So that was very much in the air. My grandmother spent you know, most of her adult life as, a, as an arts educator and a docent at the museum. So I grew up with her taking me on tours all the time. Uh, my father was an artist. My mother's an interior designer. So there's there's a lot of that stuff, that 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 uh, art world stuff in the in the background. And um, I've always been excited about the art world and sort of found my own path in it over the the course of of time. And then you joined the fast lane of finance. I did. I did. I. I was looking to uh, to make a transition out of Tennessee and hit the the big city of New York, and uh, when I was a young person in in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I was very frequently uh, looking to things like Interview Magazine, Andy Warhol's magazine, Interview, which really described a whole demi monde of, uh, of of creatives and artists and uh, people in, in New York nightlife. And so New York was was a, a bright shining star for me. And I was always excited about getting there. But I, I originally started off in finance after grad school, and did that for about 20 years working in the investment business. Uh, but all the while, I was really focused on the art world as a as an avocation as a hobby. And I spent a lot of time involved with different museums, uh, and started building a collection during those years. And so the investment business was very good because it enables you to do those things. And uh, at the time that I sold my business, I was really excited about having a new chapter in life where I could really pursue being in the art world full time. But you already had seen that art was a sort of alternate investment early on. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. I, I really did focus on that because it became clear. You know, when I was in the investment world, I worked in the world of hedge funds and private equity, which are called alternative investments. And that is to say alternative to the stock market and the bond market. And art, like real estate and, you know, commodities and things of that nature are sort of in this other category called alternative investments. And and while I didn't start off looking at art as an investment for myself – um, I did learn the value of it, 
through you know a number of different things uh, seen great appreciation with certain types of emerging artists and as well as established artists and and then I started looking at it as an investment and could I sort of take my investment interests and experience and then apply that to looking at opportunities in the art world which is what led me to to start working with Andy Warhol's photographs especially so I mean, your family were not really involved in photography. They were involved more in outsider art and folk art. And in fact, your dad, I think, was a chainsaw woodcarver. Is that yes, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. My dad, um, I mean, different family members are involved in different things in the art world or have had different, pursued different interests. Um, but no, my father was an extraordinarily esteemed collector of self-taught folk art outside what is also called outsider art. Uh, he was a, uh, a sculptor and frequently worked with uh, a, a chainsaw making making uh, these large monumental sculptures, uh, figurative sculptures. And, you know, his journey was that when he was young, he started reaching out to other wood carvers and woodworkers. And in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that's rural Appalachia for the most part. And so you meet these people that are following very traditional uh, southern uh, you know, practices of, of making art, uh, largely functional art. And that world began his journey into the outsider art world. But then really the next step was he became very interested in self-taught African-American art. Uh, these artists that were completely uneducated outside any resource of, uh, of, uh, of education and, and, and uh, context of the contemporary art world, yet they were making extraordinarily uh, beautiful works of art that sort of tapped into the same humanistic experience of expression that one finds with, you know, more educated artists. And so my dad uh, really began focusing on building his own collection of self-taught outsider artists that were mostly African-American artists. And uh, when he died, he had one of the largest collections of that material in the world. And uh, I gave his archive to the Smithsonian in, in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and he, he left quite a legacy in that, in that world. So the world of Andy Warhol was very different. Yeah. So were you interested in the photography or were you interested in what was happening in the photographs? No, well, I mean, as I said, it was really that Interview Magazine was my gateway drug. You know, as a, as a 12-year-old little boy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, dreaming about the, the big city and Studio 54 and the New York City art world, uh, that's how I learned about it. So Warhol and his cult of personality, his cult of celebrity, uh, the landscape that he was a part of were all very, very enticing to me. So it wasn't specifically photography that I was interested in. It was more him as an artist uh, and him as a social arbiter. And so as I got more educated, you know, I, I, I bought my first Warhol and then I, I, I bought a number of others. And, you know, as you get to by a painting or works on paper or prints or photographs, you know, as you look at the different types of works that an artist makes, uh, you know, I found myself really intrigued by photography because for Warhol, it was really the source material for 99% of all the artwork that he ever made. In other words, he would take a picture of Marilyn Monroe that was a Hollywood publicity still or a newspaper picture of Jackie O or of Elvis Presley and use that as source material to make the painting. And so I knew that the photographs that he made were not only part of the way he documented his life, but also in service of making other artworks uh, like the other paintings and prints and what have you. Uh, so it was that, that education, which is always a collector's journey, the educational process of 
getting a perspective on what the artist is up to, how it fits and what resonates with you. And then I found that this work was actually rather undervalued. And I think even to this day is still quite undervalued relative to other parts of his, his work. Uh, that I started to think of it as an investment and ultimately a business. Yeah, and I mean, it's an extraordinary historic document as well. And I think that, you know, art and life are obviously symbiotic. And going back to Beverly Hills, I mean, Jean Pigozzi, the infamous photographer known to be at the scene of the crimes and often in the photographs with his subjects, was documenting or began to document all the action in Beverly Hills and around the world. You have a new show of his photographs. Tell us about it. I do. I, I'm, I, I'm so excited about this work because to me, the passion that I have for Warhol is easily translated into a passion for Johnny Pagazzi's work. Um, they've both had, uh, you know, this, as I said, cult of personality, this, this incredible access to celebrity and the movers and shakers. And they've both documented these worlds in a very compelling and, and sort of singular voice. Uh, I, I look at Pagazzi's photos and I, I see Warhol's influence and I see Warhol's experiences as well. They both inform one another. Uh, there wouldn't be Pagazzi without Warhol. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I love telling people that Warhol photographed Pagazzi as well. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful complimentary relationship. And so when the Beverly Hills Hotel invited me to curate a series of, of art exhibitions here, I, I was struck by the fact that Pagazzi was such a, a great uh, symbiotic connection with uh, with the hotel. Pagazzi actually lived in this hotel. He's a, a very affluent guy from an affluent family and has had a, a, a rarefied life uh, over the years from the south of France to Harbor Island in the Bahamas to you know New York and Paris and, and even Los Angeles he's lived. And for one of those years, he lived here as a guest of the hotel. Was that 1979? I think it was. That it's, seems to be when most of the... Those po- pictures were taken, yes. Yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, Johnny was in a position to document the sort of glitterati coming out of this hotel and, and was always in the middle of it. You know, I think two of his closest friends are Mick Jagger and Michael Douglas, you know, the, these real legend stars. And uh, so anyway, the, the, the Warhol connection... The, uh, the 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 similar subject matter, Johnny's personal relationship with the hotel, the subject matter of celebrity and things happening here in Beverly Hills, it, it all seemed like a great fit. And was he living here as an artist residency or was it just a long holiday? I, I, I don't know that I am in a position to characterize it. I think that this was home base for him for a while. This is a guy that moves around a lot. And I think that, uh, that this was home base, you know, as he uh, was was dealing with a new house here. He he happens to own the largest private craftsman home in America, which is in Los Angeles. And I, and I know that during that period, he was beginning the process of, of getting that sorted. So my, my thought is he was probably, I should verify this, but I believe he was probably living here while he was sorting out this wonderful house. Does he still have a property in LA? He does. Yeah. So could we talk a little bit about what's going on in the photographs? Yeah. Some of the moments captured are fascinating. They're not just about Hollywood, but there are figures from fashion, music, sport, and big business. Mm. And I wanted to begin here at the Beverly Hills Hotel in this photograph where there's a line of five Rolls Royces valet parked outside the hotel. What did that signify? Well, I mean, I think 
Johnny's got a fantastic eye, sort of an unerring eye. He is a voracious collector of art himself. So in addition to being a voracious photographer and art maker, he's also a great collector. Uh, he has a collection with over 8,000 works in it, and there's, he's in the process of building a museum in Cannes, uh, France, for his own collection. But, you know, he comes in and he sees these moments and, and captures them beautifully. So what what is more iconic than the glamour of rolling up to the Beverly Hills Hotel and that traditional sort of lineup of the most glamorous cars, um, each one with a story bringing a different guest with a different set of experiences here? And, you know, this moment, I think it was 1974, of uh, this this stacked up group of Rolls Royces, it just sort of sets the tone that you're going someplace special. Fabulous. So on to San Francisco. Mm. So I see Steve Jobs' feet in a pair of Arizona Birkenstocks taken in 1984, which I think was the year that he made history introducing the first Macintosh. Right. Well, you know, Johnny Pagazzi sometimes is uh, spoken of as being very wealthy. You know, is that be- that being one of the, the leading characteristics used to describe him? I mean, he is a brilliant, brilliant, insightful artist, cultural arbiter, right? I mean, Jobs was obviously ahead of his time and ahead of IBM, but seemingly so in fashion as well. On to the next image, New York. So Mm. there's a nighttime shot of Muhammad Ali captured and framed perfectly in the window of a limousine. Mm. This was 1978, which I think was the year Ali made history as the only man to win the World Heavyweight Championship for a third time. Right. Well, I mean, you know, this is a beautiful, beautiful, rich photograph of Ali. There's no doubt about it. What I know from my work with Warhol Photography, who also photographed Ali as well as a number of others, this is one of the most beloved photo subjects out there. I mean, he has such a cult following of people that appreciate his religious and cultural leadership in addition to his athletic prowess. And he is beloved on every level. And this is a gorgeous picture of him, uh, you know, sort of living in the lap of luxury, but, you know, smiling. You can see his hands. It's, It's really, it's a fantastic shot. Yeah, I mean, he certainly looks like he's the greatest. Yeah. So on to Paris, 1977, Yves Saint Laurent. What's happening in that photograph? Well, you know, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. It appears that Yves Saint Laurent is with Lulu de la Falaise, who is a, was, you know, most well known as being his muse, sort of a, a model on the Paris fashion scene, who was a constant source of inspiration for Saint Laurent, as well as a number of other designers. And, you know, she was also a a bridge builder. You know, she was somebody that would cultivate relationships with people like Johnny Pagazzi and Andy Warhol and bring them into Saint Laurent's world. Saint Laurent was much more sort of um, diminutive and and circumspect and and not not as outgoing as, 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 as she was. And so she brought a lot of people into his world. Great. And you mentioned Mick Jagger, so mm. now we're in Antibes, right. and there's a great photograph of Mick Jagger with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you know the story of that photo? Well, you know, let me tell you about Antibes from the from the first place. Uh, Johnny has a spectacular property in Antibes. Uh, I've heard it say said that it's the largest private estate on the entire Riviera. Um, he's got a number of homes on this extraordinary property, uh, out at the end next to the, literally next door to the Hotel du Cap. So this home, this estate is really 
like a toll booth for the super rich. You know, it's a place where everybody wants to go. And the pool especially, right? Yes. The iconic pool. Yes. I mean, he has photographed so many supermodels, so many famous tycoons, so many famous, uh, you know, celebrity uh, influencers and what have you over the years. But it, it is a place where in the summertime, Johnny sort of holds court and uh, nobody puts on a better luncheon in the south of France on a sunny Saturday afternoon filled with the most glamorous people that you've ever seen. So Mick Jagger and Arnold Schwarzenegger are fascinating, interesting people, but they're one in a long, they're, I should say they're two, in a long lineup of people that visit that property. And, and every, every weekend afternoon is extraordinary there. Andy and Jean were both society photographers, so to mm. speak, or part of what they did was society photography. And now we have like a different society. We have like a selfie society yeah. or maybe a selfish society. I don't know. And Jean claims to have invented the selfie, right? Right. right. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, he says that tongue in cheek. But I mean, the fact is that he is an artist and he recognizes that the artist is part of the art itself. And so like Warhol, who also made uh, self-portraits, uh, both as source material for paintings, but also, you know, in, in different types of settings, they both recognize the power of the person behind the camera as well as the person in front of the camera. And, you know, I think that, that John's ability to gain access to this world. See, Warhol was either selling magazines or selling portraits. Mm -hmm. You know, he had an axe to grind. He had a business reason. Right. Johnny's engagement with the subjects, whether he's in the picture with them or not, is friend to friend. You know, it's artist to artist. And so it's a very different type of access. It's a different kind of relationship that's being documented there than Warhol, who's being paid $25,000 to paint your portrait. Right. So now that we've come to the south of France, mm. Antibes, you have a new project coming up. Oh, yeah. Another more personal journey of sorts, Voyage avec Warhol at Chateau Lacoste in Provence this summer. Yeah. I'm, What's I'm, that all about? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled. I have an old friend uh, called Patty McKillen, who is obviously an Irishman. And Patty is one of the world's great art collectors. And he acquired Chateau Lacoste, which is uh, near Arles in Provence, as you said, uh, and has turned it into one of the great art destinations in, in Europe, if not in the world. It is a place uh, where there are there is a Michelin star restaurant. There is a five star hotel. There are a number. Of, there are five different exhibition galleries, and these galleries are built by people like architect Tata Ando, architect Frank Gehry, uh, Oscar Niemeyer, Oscar Niemeyer, yeah. Richard Rogers from uh, the UK. I mean. These are really some of the world's greatest architects. And um, he's brought them in. He's brought in a permanent collection of, of outdoor sculpture and artworks, uh, amazing artwork by uh, a Louise Bourgeois Spider, for instance. So it is a platform. It is a venue for arts uh, exhibitions and cultural experiences that is really virtually unequaled in the world. And um, I had sent Patty some information on, on a, a show that I had done with Gagosian Gallery in Paris last fall. And he wrote me a congratulatory note. And I said, you know, I'd love to do something with you if ever the opportunity presented itself. 
and he jumped right on it and was very, very generous. And, and uh, so he, he's giving me one of his galleries for the summer. And we're putting on a really exciting, beautiful show of Warhol photography. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very honored about it. And it's a, a great venue for anybody that finds himself in that part of the world to visit. And my show will open there May 29th and be up through after Labor Day, after the, September 1st. And the show includes photographs that were taken far away from New York. I think some more kind of remote photographs in Aspen and elsewhere. Yes, yes. well, I wanted to give a bit of an encyclopedic overview of Warhol's life and his art making. So Warhol had property in Aspen, Colorado. He had a a beachfront estate in Montauk at the eastern edge of Long Island. Uh, So we we document some of those worlds. We document some of his commercial work. uh, And we're also going to be showing, you know, a lot of very traditional expected uh, sort of celebrity portraiture and Studio 54 imagery. I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a romp through all that was Warhol from, say, 1970 until his death in 1987. It, 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 it will be something that, that crowds, I think, will really find exciting and stimulating. And, you know, the great thing about Warhol, as you may have already heard me say, is that there's really a Warhol for everybody mm-hmm. because the breadth and depth of his art-making subjects was so incredible that – you know, you, you may not like 10 of them, but you're going to find one that you like. You know, you may, you, you'll always find something special in Warhol. So we hope we're going to serve that up for people. Well, I will definitely visit. So let's jet back to Rodeo Drive. There's talk of a golden age of art happening in Los Angeles. The city's expanded to become a real cultural capital where fashion, art, and entertainment are converging. In your role as curator of the arts, you've presented three photography shows and you're about to install a new exhibition of sculptural works by Rogan Gregory. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely excited about this. Rogan is a, um, uh, you know, is a, is a wonderful guy who, who is, you know, one of the classic polymaths. I mean, he's been talented and successful in so many different venues and careers. He was a fashion designer. Uh, he began his art-making career as a is a creator of sculptural functional art, uh, so furniture, lighting, things of this nature, and that has led him to the next step of his evolution, which is really a purely sculptural fine art practice. Um, he is, you know, one of LA's hometown stars. Um, he he is uh, a studio in Santa Monica and does extraordinary work, which is sold all over the world. Uh, represented by a wonderful gallery in New York. Um, that I've had the pleasure of working with. They have sold me work. I've collected Rogan's work, so I'm personally committed to and enthusiastic about his work. And when we, when I was thinking about the Hotel Bel Air, I was really struck by the fact that the the most exciting aspect of that property for me is the property. It's the gardens. It's the most romantic sort of Garden of Eden-like Beautiful. environment setting. And you walk into that 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 garden and you cross the bridge over Swan Lake and you you just find yourself transported there is no other place like it in the world and so i thought you know why should we why should we spend time thinking about putting pictures on the walls of the of this building of this lobby we should be thinking about amplifying the beautiful experience of those gardens and so i asked rogan if he could create some work to put in the garden so we're really going to turn the hotel bel air into a sculpture park and is this the first time that the hotel has done that had outdoor sculptures or is this 
You know, I, I, I must say, I don't know. Uh, I, I believe this is the first time that they've done an outdoor sculpture exhibition, though. And how will you invite people from outside, unconnected to the hotel? Do you think critics and collectors will come from, will you do programs outside of? Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, the, the hotel, like the Beverly Hills Hotel Lobby, they're, they're both open to the public 24-7. So, you know, one can come and visit, uh, you know, the Johnny Pagazzi exhibit here at the Beverly Hills Hotel any time of the day. Uh, similarly, one will be able to go to the Hotel Bel Air and walk the gardens. Um, it, it's a it's a beautiful spot to experience, but we want to amplify that and also give other experiences to people. So we're going to have a number of receptions, probably a talk or two with the artist, uh, where people will be able to engage with Rogan and learn about his work. Um, I, I suspect if there are guests of the hotel that are interested in learning more about his work, we'd be very happy to take them to visit his studio because it's literally 10 minutes away from the Hotel Bel Air, 15 minutes away. Uh, so, yes, we're going to be doing a number of different things over the, the run. So, I mean, guests can sojourn at the hotel and they can engage personally with these artworks, but can they purchase them? Is the goal to sell these work or is it just to display them? No, no, no. The the works will all be for sale. And, of course, you know, the, the platform of this these two properties enables one to see art in a beautiful, more residential scale, which is something that, that people like. You know, the the experience of going to a white cube white box kind of art gallery that is austere and unwelcoming is is not as great as like going in and sitting in the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel and looking at Johnny Pagazzi's photos and having a drink at the polo lounge or walking through the gardens of the Hotel Bel Air and then having a glass of champagne at our opening reception. That's a better way to experience art. And it's also, it's more in keeping with, with the way in which we live with art. So Things are for sale, indeed, and um, and we hope that people will reach out and, and tell us if they're excited about something and take the opportunity to learn more about it. But these are, these are venues for culture. These are venues not just for decoration, but places where people can come experience art in a beautiful venue and also learn about it and also have the opportunity to take it home with them. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Thank you for having me. Very, very interesting. I've loved being with you. Pleasure to talk to you. Bon voyage. (laughs) Okay. Until the next time. Jim Hedges is curator of the arts for the Beverly Hills Hotel and the Bel Air Hotel. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the Heyman family, Beverly Wilshire, a Four Seasons Hotel, and the Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau. This episode was hosted by Lynn Winter. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. Join us on Instagram at Rodeo Drive.